My name is Anthony Fatsis and welcome to the What The Finance podcast, where we interview finance, trading, investing experts to help you understand current market trends and learn about the intricacies of new and existing assets. Hello and welcome What The Finances to another episode of the What The Finance podcast, where we talk to experts to help gain a greater understanding about what is happening in the world of finance, investing and markets. So on today's podcast, I'm happy to welcome John Danielson, our Director of Systemic Risk at the London School of Economics and author of the recently released book, The Illusion of Control, Why Financial Crises Happen and What We Can Do, we can and Can't Do About It. So John, thanks for joining the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me on. You're welcome. So I guess, can you talk about more about what was your influence for writing the book? So I've been working on researching systemic risk and crisis for quite a long time. It's been a recurring theme in my career. And so over the past few years, I've been increased, as I've been increasingly writing about it and talking about it, I thought, why not just collate it all into a book? And then when I was approached by a publisher to see if I wanted to write a book for them, I said, this is the fan- a fantastic opportunity and ended up writing the book that just came out. Perfect. Worked out quite well then. And I guess uh, for people who might not know what is systemic risk how would you define it and then how would you link that to financial markets and the industry in general systemic risk is the low chance that something goes terribly wrong in the financial system we might get a crisis like we had in 2008 or we might have uh, some abuse or some some other things going wrong but it's basically the chance of the financial system not doing what we expected to do. Yeah. And is that, um, do you think financial in financial markets, there's more risk because it's just interlinked in basically every part of our society. So it can sort of spread to basically the whole world as we saw in 2008. The financial system is the plumbing that makes the economy works. It connects everybody together. It allows us to save for uh, for old age or, or to buy a car. It allows us to borrow money to buy a house. It provides our student loans. So, fine, so fi- the financial system is absolutely the plumbing that makes the economy works. And as we do know, when plumbing, when the plumbing works, it's all fantastic. And when the plumbing does not work, terrible things happen both in our houses and in the financial system. So it's really something we hopefully are not too aware of on most days. But when things go wrong, it goes really badly wrong. Yeah, I guess you could say, you know, 2008, specifically in the UK, when we saw uh, Northern Rock and sort of RBS as well, there was a real risk. And you could say other countries, you know, Iceland's a good example as well. There's real risk that people couldn't take money out of banks. and they, It's hard to survive when you don't have any money. I mean, 2008 is a really good example because 2008, or the crisis, what, 14 years ago, happens because the banks and other institutions in the financial system, they went a bit crazy. They took on too much risk. And when you take on too much risk, there's always the chance that things go wrong. And things went completely pear-shaped in 2008. The banks suffered large losses. And when the banks start losing money, they're no longer helping the economy. They are no longer providing lending to companies. So the economy goes down along with the financial system. So when the banks fail, we end up in a recession. 
And that's what happened in 2008, and it's happened many, many times before, and I'm sure will happen many times in the future. Yeah, and you know, is that the main cause of, I guess, a financial crisis? Is it just these institutions and other people taking on too many risks? Is it policymakers? Are there, you know, multiple different things that could influence it? I guess, what are the major ones that you've seen in your research? So, if you go down to the most basic level, what goes wrong is that banks simply make too many bad loans, and when when the borrowers don't repay the money. That that is when the banks get into difficulty and even fail. So that's at its core. But of course, this is a clearly well understood problem, and we have a lot of regulations that are put in place to prevent banks from failing, and prevent banks from making too many bad loans. And we've been regulating banks for a good part of two centuries now, and they still fail. And the reason is that while every single financial crisis is at its core, has these elements of banks just Lending themselves, lending too much, and get into difficulty. The details are always different, and that because the financial system is, I believe, the most complex construct human beings have ever have ever made. Because it's so complex, that even though we have regulations and safeguards and all these things we create to keep the system safe, things still can go wrong. Because all these controls can only cover one part of the system, and uh, while the regulations in 2008 might have been perfect for some scenarios, they were the wrong type of regulations we had for the type of risk that emerged at that time. And that is always the case because of the complexity of the system. We can never control anything more than a tiny part of it, and that allows the full. Of instability to emerge somewhere else, and that's exactly the common factor in crisis: is that no matter what we do or try to do to regulate the financial system, the forces of instability always find an outlet somewhere. And do you think that's the issue that you know central bankers and I guess governments they try to have full control of these systems? They try to make no matter what. You know, there's never a recession. I think David Brown was famous saying, "You know, we're not going to see the boom and bust cycle anymore. We're just going to see growth." And you know, I'm sure other central bankers have said the same thing. So, do you think it's a fool's you know game for them to try and prevent a recession or even market crises ever happening? Well, of course, the central bankers and the regulators and the politicians—they have to do their best. And there are different ways we can go up and do about it. They, the problem, and this is what gave me the title of my book, the illusion of control, is that they tend to get too confident in the regulations they create. This is why we have all the policymakers and politicians promising us things, things will now be okay in the future. The problem is the regulations we have; they are like driving via the rearview mirror. You're looking at the past and trying to prevent the past from happening. And I can promise you two things. First, there will be another crisis, and second, it will happen some in a different place of the system than all the previous crises, because the regulations only only cover one part of it. So, while it is certainly true we have to regulate the system, we have to do our best. Still, there's an intelligent and not an intelligent way of doing the regulations. 
So I guess what would be the intelligent way, and uh, are these <laughs> are they are they following that way? That way, I guess is a good question. Well, that's what gives me. That's really what the the book Illusion of Control is all about, because it's making the case that the ways we use to regulate the system, which is sort of at this core, we have what we have this mythical device which I call the riskometer. So imagine the thermometer that you use to measure the temperature in your office at the moment. The temperature says 22 degrees, all is perfect. If the temperature goes to 18, you crank the thermostat up. If the temperature hits 26, you crank the heat down. So the the, the temperature in your office is regulated by the thermometer and works perfectly well. And we tend to think that you can measure the risk in the financial system in a similar way. There is some sort of riskometer that works in the same way as the thermometer that allows the regulators to measure the risk in the financial system. So all the Bank of England has to do is to stick a riskometer deep into the bowels of the city of London. And when the, the riskometer measures too much risk, the Bank of England has a simple device where it can crank down the risk in the system until it hits the appropriate level. It's the belief in the riskometer and the belief that financial risk is easily measured and easily controlled that is at the root of the illusion of control. Because by trying to do it, the authorities, I think, fool themselves into believing things are under control. But the way to deal with risk in the system, to the way to keep the system safe is different than simply relying on inaccurate risk measurements and trying somehow to control the amount of risk that has been taken. And how would they control that? Because I guess, you know, they can increase interest rates, but the risk of that is, you know, you might be using a hammer when maybe a scalpel would be necessary and uh, it's not very targeted. And I guess, you know, they could do QT, but would that be, is that how they could reduce risk? Because it seems as if they've been trying to do that and same with the US uh, Fed have been trying to do that, but risk-taking is still occurring. Well, the, the main device the financial authorities have at their disposal for controlling risk is bank capital because bank capital directly hits the cost of lending. So if you want the banks to lend less, all you have to do is to make the cost of providing loans higher, and that makes the banks automatically curtail lending. And the device the financial authorities have at their disposal is bank capital. Bank capital is the amount of risk-free assets the banks have to hold, like government bonds, which don't earn the banks much money. So instead of the banks making loans to you to buy a car or me to get a mortgage, the banks instead are forced to take an increasingly big part of their assets and simply buy government bonds, buy government assets. And that reduces the amount of lending and makes the banks safer because supposedly government bonds are the safest types of assets, perhaps not quite in reality, but that's the idea. So bank capital is the lever the financial authorities have at their disposal for controlling risk-taking. And the, what they should be doing is, if all things, if we lived in the best of all possible worlds, they could simply measure the risk in the system by this riskometer. And when the risk is high in the system, they simply increase bank capital. And when risk is low, they decrease bank capital. 
that's the idea, but of course it doesn't work that way in practice. Yeah, and I guess the challenge at the moment is most Western countries, both public and private debt is very high. So if that they were to take away that liquidity of loans and debt, that could have a massive impact on the economy potentially. Yeah, of course, that's exactly what happens. And we saw that really clearly after COVID in 2020. Because at the height of the COVID crisis, the regulators around the world, including here in the United Kingdom and in the United States, they reduced the amount of capital banks are required to hold, with the idea being the banks would lend more to COVID-stricken companies. Except, of course, that didn't happen because in a stress scenario, when the banks perceive things are going wrong, the precautionary principle, the banks don't want to fail. And because they don't want to fail, what they end up doing is they hoard the cash. So they don't, in order to survive a stress, uh, stressful times, the banks simply hold on to the money. They don't lend them out. So regardless of the amount of capital requirements you, you impose on the banks, if you want them to lend more, the authorities are unable to do that because the banks simply, out of the pure precautionary principle, refuse to lend the money out. And that's exactly what happened after COVID-19. And even today, if the authorities wanted the banks to lend out more because the economy seems to be heading rapidly into recession, even if they lowered capital requirements, the banks won't lend out more. So capital, the main device in the central bank's arsenal, is significantly flawed. First of all, it, de it depends on risk measurements that are highly inaccurate. And secondly, it doesn't change the behavior of banks in the way the authorities would prefer. Yeah, and I guess um, the issue is a lot of people think that you know the central banks, they're the ones who create the money that goes throughout the system. But I guess from what we can see, it's more the banks where they, you know, the central bank gives them, I guess, money potentially, and then they can loan it out from there. So that's actually where the money comes from. If the banks aren't loaning, as you said, there's the potential for liquidity just to dry up in, in the whole market. No, that's exactly accurate. So the we often tend to think that the amount of money in the system is simply the amount of money created by the Bank of England or the Federal Reserve or the European Central Bank. But that is not true because money is created by the interaction of the people who make up the economy. So the banks create money, but so does everybody else when they go about the daily economic lives. So money is created by people in the system. Uh, of course, the amount of money is strongly influenced by the amount of money the Bank of England and the other central banks create, but that is not the total amount of money. And the central banks have no control over that. And that that is why, of course, today, this is on a slightly different topic to the one we are discussing, is why the central banks find it so difficult to control inflation. But when it comes to systemic risk, the central banks simply do not have any good tools at their disposal for doing it, except really blunt tools. They can force banks not to lend, so they are able to curtail excessive risk-taking. But that might work in extreme cases, but the danger is when they try to do that, perhaps because there's a long time lag between observing a problem and the and the 
actual control device being implemented. So the Bank of England might observe, oh my God, risk is very high today. And then they have a lot of meetings and then it has to go to the board and a few months pass. And then they said, okay, we decided to do something. What should we do? They spend a few months in meetings and discussions and half a year, a year passes before the decision is put into place. And then by the time the decision or reaction is put into place, it has to impact on the economy. So you might end up in one or two years from the time the problem is identified. Uh, that is when the corrective measures are, are actually biting. And by that time, things might have changed completely ar uh, around. Instead of the economy being in a boom or the financial system in a high risk, it might be doing the opposite. So the risk might be falling. So exactly when the device or the control the central banks implement, when that starts affecting the financial system is, is the wrong time. When it actually, when the, when the control device bites, perhaps the risk should be increasing, not decreasing. So it's really hard for the central banks to do much about aggregate risk in the financial system. And that is at the core, the illusion of control, believing that you can, when the world doesn't quite want to cooperate. Yeah, and I guess the challenge is, I think we've seen the, the Fed and the ECB, they're going meeting to meetings. So I guess they're understanding that they can't spend a year or two understanding what's happening and then make changes. They have to do it very quickly. But we've seen that normally what happens is these banks will continue to increase interest rates, something will break, there'll be a massive collapse, and then they'll have to almost reverse their decisions. Of course, I mean, it is the time lag between decisions and the lack of understanding of what is really happening in the system, which is what makes the job of the financial authorities so difficult, especially when it comes to controlling systemic risk. However, I mean, there are ways the financial authorities can deal with the problem much more effectively if only they were willing to avail themselves of it. But they do have the powers, they do have the knowledge to make the financials, uh, to reduce systemic risk. But it only requires a little bit of political will on behalf of the financial authorities. And what would they be? Just what you mentioned before, having the riskometer and then acting earlier? Or? So the, the, one of the worst things that can happen is if everybody in the system sees risk in the same way and reacts to risk in the same way. If, so, if some shock happens, at the moment we have the Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and tomorrow there will be some other shock hitting the system. If a shock happens, if everybody sees risk in the same way, and if everybody's required by regulations and law to react to this shock in the same way, that means that the banks have to start selling risky assets all at the same time. And because we know assets are correlated, because of the shock, they have to start selling. And because they sell, prices fall more. And because prices fall more, the banks sell more. And this spreads across most risky assets in the system simply because they are so correlated. And the mere fact that the banks are required to measure risk in mostly the same way, and they are required to react to risk in the same way, all because of regulations like Basel III, that makes the banks react very strongly to the incoming shock. And that is what makes a crisis very deep. 
What is much better is if some banks see the shock coming and they decide to sell, but other banks might even see an opportunity and buy. So the, so the, if you want the institutions that make up the financial system, the banks and all the fund managers and all the rest of it, to be as different as possible so that when a shock happens, some buy and some sell. And that evens out the reaction of the financial system to shocks. In other words, the one word for this is diversity. The more diverse the banks and the all the lenders and all the asset managers and the like, the more diverse they are, the the better, the more the shock absorption capacity of the financial system, the better it reacts to shocks and the milder the impact of shocks is onto the real economy. All you need is to make the institutions of the financial system diverse, all different, and that would automatically and quite simply make this make the financial system much more resilient and reduce systemic risk. But of course, what gets in the way are difficult politics. Yeah, definitely. So, but do you think that would be something that would have to come through policy of uh, legislation preventing what banks can do or trying to diversify them into? Doing different things, or so there are, come to the bank, the company. Sorry. So there are t- at least two reasons why the whole regulatory apparatus, the regulators like the Bank of England and the Fed and the ECB, are in effect anti-diversity. There are two important reasons why. One is from within the regulatory organisations, and one comes from the financial system. The one internal is that. What the regulators don't want is for things to go wrong. And what the regulators want is what is known as a fair or level playing field. So they want to treat everybody in the same way. They want to have the same rules that apply to everything. And if you have that, it makes the job of the regulator the safest because they can't be seen as having done anything wrong. So it's easiest for the regulatory agencies to have the level playing fields, to have uniform rules that apply to everybody because it protects the job of the regulator, but it also makes the job of regulation simpler because all they have to do is to think of one rule system and it makes the whole thing relatively simple. If we diversify the regulations so that they allow different institutions to emerge, then the job of the regulator becomes harder the job of the regulatory agency becomes harder. And that is, of course, fiercely resisted by both the staff members and the, and the regulatory agencies. And the, on, the, on the other side of that, and supporting this, is the banks themselves. What is really interesting when you watch regulations or watch how financial institutions react to regulations and Basel III, what you see is that the insurance companies and the asset managers, they complain loudly and bitterly about regulations. The banks don't complain much. And the reason, of course, is that the way we regulate banks today protects the biggest banks. Because if you if you treat everybody in the same way, you make the regulations have to be sufficiently complex to cover the largest banks and, but if you do that, you make the cost of complying so high 
that is impossible for any alternative financial institutions, you penalize the smaller ones and you especially penalize new entrants. So in other words, you create monoculture, you end up with increasingly large banks that, and, that require increasingly complex regulations that make it increasingly hard uh, on, on the smaller banks and practically impossible for new institutions to come onto the market. So the regulators and the banks, they collude in, in, in being anti-diverse and in keeping the system, regulations as complex and uniform as possible because it suits them both. So what is required to overcome that is for the political establishment, the politicians, to give the regulators an explicit mandate to increase diversity. And we have all this discussion today about fintech. Well, we might think, given the amount of ink spilled onto discussion of fintech, that the financial authorities welcome it. It's not really true. They try often seem to be doing the level best to prevent any new entrants coming to the market. So if you if you force, if you make the regulators have to accept new entrants in the markets to, to have different rules for the smaller banks, to have different rules for new types of financial institutions coming to the market, you get more diversity, you, you create, you make the financial system much better able to absorb shocks, you reduce systemic risk, but you also make the cost of financial services cheaper so the economy grows more. So it's a win-win-win type of policy if only we could overcome the, the, the objection of the regulatory authorities and the banks that do not want this to happen. Yeah, and that's vital. And I guess the challenge is that a lot of these fintech companies have sort of been on the line of regulation and almost trying to avoid it. And we've seen that, I guess, you know, there's a few good, uh, a lot of good ones in the UK, but then I guess if you look at crypto, there's a lot of, there's been a lot of issues with consumers being, their value being destroyed because of these crypto companies. So I guess it's finding that balance between the, you know, the rules, but also protecting the consumers. Of course. I mean, but the, those rules are what is known as microprudential in the technical language. You can cert you certainly have to protect consumers from abusive companies, but there is nothing in protecting consumers from abusing companies that implies you end up with a handful of very large banks. On the contrary, consumers are much better served by having a diverse in a flora of com of financial institutions that cater to their, that cater to them, so we can certainly at the same time protect consumers from abuse and also allow allow diversity. So the the one can one can justify anti diversity by saying only the largest banks are the safest institutions. That's the only way to protect consumers. But that that is false. You can certainly enhance the interests of consumers much more by having a diverse set of financial institutions because then consumers can find the type of financial products that suit them best. If they want a lot of risk in crypto or other assets, there is no reason why they shouldn't be able to take that risk. And if they want safety, they should get safety. But at the moment, if 
all you end up with one type of financial institutions. You don't. You end up with a system that is uniform, anti-diversity, amplifies cycles, is more crisis-prone, but also is very expensive and does not cater to the needs of the consumer. Yeah, and we could get to the point where they're too big to fail. So if anything were to happen in one institution, you know, we've seen it with RBS, other, you know, Lehman's, I guess, that was allowed to collapse. But if if it becomes too concentrated and these companies collapse, then they'll have to be bailed out and it'll cost the taxpayers tens of billions, probably hundreds of billions now. Now, that's a really interesting question because after so in two, the lesson from 2008 was that we should we should not want we do not want large institutions that are too big to fail because if they are too big to fail there is almost nothing the government can do the regulators can do because they can't be allowed to fail this also gives the financial institutions a license to misbehave as we have seen multiple times in the past so the response of the regulators who were re- who were trying to deal with the fallout of 2008 was to merge them together. So instead of so even if a big part of the problem prior to 2008 was too many, too big to fail institutions, the solution was to make even more to to make the problem worse. So we ended up with fewer and bigger banks after 2008. So we went exactly in the wrong direction on the too big to fail problem. And this is where diversity and the fintech companies come in because if you end up with new types of banks, new types of financial companies that are small, they are certainly not too big to fail. And so by increasing the diversity, you also solve the problem or the threat to society by the too big to fail problem. Perfect. So what you think is, uh, you know, we need more of these fintech companies and, the, and more competition to diversify. So if one collapses, it doesn't mean the whole system goes down. That's exactly, that exactly is key to it. So the problem with the too big to fail is that one of the super large banks we have today, if any one of them fails, it imposes very large costs on society and they will spread throughout the financial system and can easily cause a major financial crisis and the recession simply if one of these banks fails. While if you have a large number of smaller banks, even if one or few or a handful of them fails, it does not threaten society. And that is why the diversity in the type of financial institutions we have and a large number of smaller companies, which is exactly what the fintech industry is promising, if only the that is allowed to happen on a much bigger scale, it will incre- it will provide significant benefits to society at large. Yeah, which is vital. So, if we, if we look at today and what's happening in financial markets, uh, do you see any similarities to two thousand eight, or, or I guess the years beforehand, or what's your opinion on that? So the the crisis in two thousand and eight happened. As, I mean, at this core, because banks misbehaved. They created all these dangerous financial instruments, CDOs and the like, which made them highly dependent on liquidity. And when that liquidity went away, the banks were done for. That was the crisis in 2008. The banks today in the year 2022 are very different beasts. They are much more resilient and they're much better able to withstand the shock 
And equally, they are not misbehaving on a large scale like, like they did 15 years ago. So, so the shocks coming our way today, the banks are much better able to bear them. So the financial system re- re- remains fairly robust on that metric against all the incoming shocks that are coming our way. That's good. I guess we have seen though that, you know, Credit Suisse have had a few issues recently. So there are, they may experience higher losses potentially, but they are probably well set or better set than they were in 2008. They don't have massive uh, leverage as they did then. Well, the Credit Suisse crystallizes the problem of too big to fail because it's such a lot in the, in his home country, Switzerland, it is such a large bank that if, Credit Suisse were to face significant difficulties or, in a worst case, face bankruptcy, it would impose significant and large costs on the small country of Switzerland that hosts it. And Credit Suisse either has been badly managed or has just been unlucky or a combination of both recently since they have gone through a series of misadventures. And that's exactly what you don't, that's exactly the type of problem that is not too concerning if banks are small, but become a significant public concern if the banks are too big to fail. So the very fact that Credit Suisse is too big to fail in Switzerland is what makes it such a worrying thing, whether it is badly managed or unlucky, regardless of that. It is the size that is the biggest danger and allowing banks to become that large is, of course, a big public concern. Yeah, and they're just too big to be managed. You've seen that with HSBC and all these other, you know, banks that have had issues with money laundering and, and other scandals because it's just impossible to manage hundreds of thousands of people and what they're doing every single day, unfortunately. Indeed, I mean the the and and when the banks hit a certain size, it's so difficult for them to have an overview of everything that is happening. And the problem, the problem, because in HSBC is a really good example of this. Because some ten years ago, they were accused, or the Mexican subsidiary was accused of facilitating payments among drug lords in Mexico. And the U.S. authorities and the Attorney General at the time in a statement to the U.S. Senate said, in effect, that we can't do anything about it because if we try to punish HSBC for this misbehavior, it will cause a systemic crisis because they are too big to fail. So that shows exactly that if there is something wrong going in some parts of such a large organization, and because they are so large, even if the Home Office is wants to do all it can to, to prevent misbehavior, they can't control everything. And misbehavior can always, always happen somewhere else. And we've seen multiple cases recently outside of HSBC of a similar nature. And it's really the size of the banks that makes them so hard to manage. And the size also makes it so hard for the authorities to do anything about it. Yeah, which is scary to think. But as we said, we're in a better position. Let's just hope that there isn't bad management within. But uh, John, thank you so much for your time today. And I guess, you know, my last question is, what is uh, one message you want people to take away from our interview and your book as well? So the last, last message from my book, Illusion of Control, is that the financial authorities, they 
claim that they got the problem of finance under control, they got the banks properly regulated, and we had the best possible financial system we could have. That is, at its core, the illusion of control. We are very far from it. We have created a very expensive regulatory structure that is not really properly fit for purpose. There is a better way for dealing with the illusion of control with how to regulate the system, and that is simply to harness the internal stabilizing forces of the financial system, which is best accomplished by diversity, by regulating financial institutions differently, by encouraging new entrants into the system. And the more diverse the system is, the more different the financial institutions become, the lower the cost of financial services and the lower the systemic risk arising from the system. Perfect. That's, I think that's a great message to take away. So, John, thanks again. Uh, if people wanted to find out more about yourself and maybe buy the book, where were the best places for that be? So, the, uh, so I do maintain a website for the book called illusionofcontrol.org, which has the which summarizes what's in the book. Otherwise, you can certainly find the book on Amazon.com, which and other fine retailers. Perfect. I'll put that all in the description below. So, John, thanks again for your time. Perfect. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening. And if you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe so you're notified when new podcasts are released. I hope you're leaving with some great value about investing, trading, and finance. See you on the next show.